Hello everyone and welcome to this new podcast of Jocelyn Inside. Juliette, Isai and I are going to be your moderator in this podcast. Today, Jess Wade, physicist at the Imperial College in London, will join us. Her research investigates polyamor-based organic light-emitting diets. Her public engagement work in science, technology, engineering and mathematics champions women in physics as well as tackling systemic biases such as gender bias and racial bias on Wikipedia. If you want to learn more about inclusion and women in science, stay with us. Thanks Jess for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast series. So today we will be talking about uh, women in science and the place of women in the world. So today I would like to ask you to describe yourself in a few sentences. What's your fighting for and what's your project? Awesome. So my name is Jess. I'm a physicist working at Imperial College London. I kind of work between physics, chemistry and material science. And my research looks to develop new materials for electronic devices so that we can have devices and kind of pieces of equipment that let us do things that we've never been able to do before. Particularly so far, I've focused on kind of high performance materials for, for light emitting diodes and display technologies. So kind of your mobile phone and television display. But now I'm much more interested in thinking about how I can take these fascinating materials and look at the way that charges move through them, particularly thinking about if we can create electronic devices that don't only make use of electron charge, but also the spin of the electrons. We kind of get into quantum mechanics there, so I'm not gonna go any deeper. But what I've kind of worked on, and I think the reason that I think it would be great to, to connect and to be part of the projects that you're working on too, is to try and improve the representation of women and people of color in science, particularly in physics. Physics is historically a very old white man subject. And, and there's a whole bunch of us now worldwide of, of, of scientists who really want to change that. And I think it starts really early. I think it starts kind of in primary school and high school where we first interact with and engage with physics. So something I've been really working on over the past couple of years is to try and change the public perception of physics, the image of physics that people have. And a big part of that for me has been to try and better celebrate the efforts and the research of people from marginalized backgrounds so so to better communicate their stories and for the last couple of years I've been doing that on Wikipedia so every single day I write the Wikipedia page about a woman or a person of color scientist or engineer and and it's been this kind of extraordinary journey of, of better documenting their work and better telling their stories. Um, so when did you decide to actually start this project of putting more diversity into science? What was your stimulus? I think I, I probably, you know, I started when I got to my undergraduate degree and I looked around the physics department that I was studying in and I realized that it was incredibly white, incredibly upper middle class. It's quite a posh subject to study physics at university and incredibly male. So I started kind of campaigning and working then with high schools to try and improve their perception of physics and also with teachers and parents to try and make sure that they could communicate to their children effectively that physics was a really exciting, cutting edge and cool and dynamic subject to study at university. I think it has this, you know, people have a lot of misconceptions that physics is really old fashioned and everything's been done. 
So I was kind of working on that. And then when I got to doing my PhD, I became more involved with kind of organizing projects. So organizing big events to introduce young people to science, but really also started thinking about how we made the scientific community better for the women and the people of color working in it. So it's not just we're going to improve the numbers of people applying to study these subjects and we're going to improve the diversity of people coming in. We really, really need to work on the physics community to make sure it's a really welcoming and inclusive place so that people stay. So, so I started doing that during my PhD and then I got to, to hear about Wikipedia and its kind of influence on society. So, so I think the kind of interesting thing is I had just used, I'd used Wikipedia a little bit, like cheating in crosswords and like, you know, getting facts in a pub quiz, but I'd never really thought about the way it interacts with kind of education. It really impacts science. It impacts journalists. So if, if, if journalists are about to go on television or write an article about a topic that they're non-expert in, they'll often go to the Wikipedia page before they get into the kind of more technical subject matter. So it impacts the media, impacts education, it impacts the direction that science goes because scientists like me, people who work at the, the intersection between dis different disciplines often go to Wikipedia for information. And then it impacts our lives in all of these really subtle ways. So if you've ever asked a question of Siri or Amazon Alexa or Google Home, the place they go to for information is Wikipedia. So it's kind of everything is relying on this phenomenal open access platform, which is why it's so popular, right? It's the fifth most popular website in the world and it's accessed between 30 and 70 million times a day. But the content on there is super biased. So the content is, is mainly about people in the Northern Hemisphere. It's if you look at, or people or topics related to the Northern Hemisphere, if you look at the biographies on the site and you look at the gender balance of biographies on the site, and most of them are only categorized in a binary way, just because of the way Wikipedia gets data. But that's certainly something we need to improve too. But if you look at the gender balance of the biographies, only about one in five of the biographies on English speaking and French speaking Wikipedia are about women. And so, so when I learned that, and when I learned about this huge impact of Wikipedia in kind of direct and indirect ways on our lives, I thought I really need to better document the stories of, of women and people of color scientists and other marginalized groups so that when young people, their parents, their teachers, when the scientists themselves interact with, with Wikipedia and the media, it's much more representative of the communities that they serve. Why did you decide to work at the university? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I had no, I mean, I had no idea when I was younger that I wanted to end up being a scientist. I went to, before I studied physics at, at university, I actually went to art school for a year. So I did a year of kind of learning about illustration and design and living in Italy and learning about the Renaissance. And I knew I loved physics. I really loved the order and the structure of it. I really find it fascinating that you can describe the natural world with kind of observation and mathematical equations and you can find these connections between the super big and the super small and I, I, I honestly like there's not a single day when I'm not fascinated by the research I'm doing I think it's so great 
but I started studying physics and then got to kind of doing an undergraduate research project, which was looking at new materials for solar panels. So to try and find new, more sustainable and more interesting materials to study for solar panels. And I just got really into it. I had never really thought about scientific research as anything that I would do long-term. My parents are both medical doctors and actually my brother is also now a medical doctor. So it was always like a sciencey family, but I didn't know that you could do research as a job. I had no idea. So I started doing a PhD and became kind of, I'm gonna say fascinated again. I keep saying fascinated, but it's because I'm really excited about what I do. So that, that beyond just the research being amazing, the people you work with in science are quite extraordinary. They all come from super diverse, different backgrounds. People have usually had quite different training. So, so you know, some people are chemists, some people are material scientists, some people are engineers, some people trained in France, some people trained in China, some people trained in North America. So you have these kind of opportunities to engage with people who, who have had such a different background to you that you just come to scientific discoveries more easily you know, everyone brings different ideas and contributions. And, and it certainly makes for a really dynamic and exciting working environment. So I started doing this, this PhD. And then I just kind of thought, well, it'd be quite fun to stay around in this. And then I had my um, exam at the end of my PhD. So you do PhD kind of doctoral research for about three years. And then at the end of that, you have an exam where you have to explain what you've done to two other scientists and they sit there and ask you, ask you loads of questions about it. And it goes on for many hours and it's really intimidating. But actually, it was super incredible. I had, I had such a great time. And the, the, one of the people who was examining me had a job opening in his lab. And so I applied to work in that. And it's kind of been extraordinary ever since then, just learning new things about the materials we're looking at and, and trying to propose them for new kinds of electronic devices and sensors. And so I've just, you know, none of it has been planned. None of it has been me kind of sitting down and saying, I want to become a professor by the age of 40. It's more that I just have fun and everything that I do, I just think, hey, yeah, that's a cool thing to look at. I'm going to go and do that. Or I'm going to write to this person and see if I can work with them on this thing. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's just evolved into this career that now looks like it was a planned scientific career, but really it's just, I'm doing whatever I enjoy. Um, and why do you think that women are less represented than men in the science industry? Because for instance, we don't really know much science women. And I think the most favorite one is probably Marie Curie. So why do you think this is happening right now? I think for a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, historically, the reason that we know so few, so the reason that the majority of people in science textbooks are men, white men particularly, is because of access to science education and access to scientific research labs. So at the time when Marie Curie was working, and actually almost until kind of 50, 60 years ago, in the UK, women weren't legally allowed to graduate from university. So women couldn't go to university. I mean, they also couldn't vote or own property. So you couldn't go to university, you couldn't vote, you couldn't own property. So your only real way to become a scientist historically was if your brother was a scientist and you lived with your brother, or if your husband was a scientist, then you were lucky enough to play around in their lab. So there are very few women historically that have, have been able to, had the opportunity to, to achieve the kind of research 
status that Marie Curie had. But then kind of fast forward to 2020, I think women still face, and actually all marginalized groups, I should emphasize it's really not just women. When we look around, when I look around physics, the main thing you notice is how white it is. You know, in the UK, I think in the UK, and this is completely accurate, that less than 1% of our physics faculty are black. So that's completely not comparable to the population, to the ethnic, to the demographics of the population. So physics is, is very, very white and it's very, very male. And that's because of, because of this historical precedent, because of the hierarchies that exist within academic and industrial research, because it's currently very difficult, especially in the UK, but probably worldwide, to have, a, to have a family or to have any caring responsibilities and to still work as a scientist, to be able to come back into the lab after you've had children or taken time out to look after elderly parents, that's still challenging, much more challenging than it should be. Some universities and some scientific industries still don't have childcare on campus. So you don't have an opportunity, you know, my mum is a psychiatrist and when I was growing up, me and my brother spent our entire time in the nursery on her university campus. And some places still don't have that. We still have this huge disparity in accessing really, really good science education. So if you look around the world, France has it, the UK has it, America have it, but we have a really big shortage of really great science teachers. And if you've not got a really great science teacher and you're from a historically underrepresented group, it's really hard to see yourself contributing to that subject. So we don't have enough women and people of color and, and LGBTQ plus people and, and scientists with disabilities, pretty much every protected characteristic. There's not enough of that going into science. So we don't train them at high school enough. We don't have enough people thinking they could do these subjects. And then we don't have the right community and environment in science to let women and other marginalized groups really excel and really succeed. There's a lot of evidence that's been coming out over the past couple of years now, looking at the huge disparity and bias in allocating science funding. So, so that disproportionately goes to white Western men over the whole world in, in the whole process of, of writing up your science. You know, when we finished doing a scientific experiment, we write it into a report, we write a paper on it actually. And that whole process, that process of publishing your papers is again biased towards old white men because of who's at the top. So we have these really uneven power hierarchies, which not only protect these, these people who've been historically overrepresented, but also ensure that they have a smoother path at moving through an academic career. So pretty much everything, and I've, I've said that, and I should have kind of given you some really punchy bullet points at the beginning and then gone into detail, but pretty much the system is kind of set up to be biased against women and minorities. So the system is set up that way, and then we don't have enough women and minorities going in to change it. So we've got women and minorities underrepresented at almost every level. And because of biases in the system, they're just leaving faster. And so what I think science really needs to do is really radically reconsider how it trains and supports scientists so that in the future we have a much, much more diverse and kind of, you know, we have a scientific community that reflects the population of the world. To what extent the uh, uh, the level of 
sexism and prejudice or inaccessibility um, in science at this level overlaps with just inaccessibility to higher education and academia in general. Um, like, is this something that's super specific to science or is it just a problem of the institutions of academia that it's difficult for women to succeed or for minorities to succeed? I think that there are issues related to science specifically. So I think that the, there's a lot of prejudice in science and bias towards scientists who don't have the flexibility to move around to different countries all the time. So, you know, you're very well respected as a scientist if you train in the UK, go and spend some time elsewhere in Europe, maybe do a postdoc in America, move to Canada to start your early career. You know, that idea of international hopping and jet setting is, is a really big deal to science. And, and that's, I think, unique compared to other subjects. You know, you wouldn't be expected to do that in the arts or in, in the humanities. But I really do think that this access issue to studying science in the first place. So, so physics has if we look at the kind of gender demographics, physics has a kind of A level. So the final year exam in the UK, 17, 18 years old, physics is about 20% women and it's about 20% women at undergraduate too. And then it starts to kind of decrease to about 10% women at professor level. But a huge amount of that is about the quality of the teacher that you have. So the Institute of Physics, which is our professional body for physics in the UK, have shown that if you're a girl at an independent or girls school, you're two and a half times more likely to study physics than if you're at a mixed state maintained school. And a lot of that is related to the quality of the physics teaching that you'll get in an independent school. Independent schools usually have physics specialists teaching physics. They usually have some, well, not usually, but some independent schools have physicists with PhDs teaching physics, whereas the majority of the state sector, it's something like 60% have, you know, a biology teacher covering physics. And mm. then you get a really different interaction and introduction to the subject. And I think that's quite different, you know, physics, computer science and advanced maths are the subjects where we really struggle to get people even with A-levels to teach it. And I think that introduction, that first interaction you have with the subject completely shapes the way that you think about it and see yourself in it. And, and because that's not just gender biased, but it's also hugely driven by socioeconomic class. And, and then it becomes incredibly overlapped and, in, and kind of interacted. Um, the relationships between access to education are so, are so different. I, I'm, not sure how to articulate it but it becomes such a strong strong influencing factor on the quality of the physics teaching that you got and whether you'll become a scientist that i think i think science is 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 unique compared to other disciplines particularly physics you've been talking about the minority and the woman in science so how can we uh, recognize and and how can we get women the recognition and the deserved that also the minorities, how can they get their recognition? So obviously I think a great way is through Wikipedia or else I wouldn't be editing it. But I think more broadly, I think the media have a huge influence in the way that we communicate the stories of, of scientists and really who makes discoveries. You know, you know, at the moment we've got kind of accelerated public awareness of science because of the pandemic and everyone wants information super quickly. So if you think about the power that newspapers and news broadcasters have 
in telling the more diverse stories of who's doing the research. You know, you look at who's leading the vaccine trials or who's looking at new designs of drugs that can combat coronavirus. The, the people that you choose to platform, the people that you put on the front of your website, on your you know, news at nine interview in your newspaper article, really influence the public's perception of who does science. You know, when you see these incredibly diverse teams of scientists who are working on the new vaccine, that makes the people in the, in the wider society think, hey, cool, they look a little bit like me, I could be like that one day too. So, so I think the media have a big role. I think social media, so things like Wikipedia and, and YouTube and all of that, that's also really, really fantastic. But we need to make sure that women and minorities get the recognition that they deserve for the work that they've done. And so a big part of it is beyond just putting them on television, but nominating people for awards and prizes and making sure that they have you know, the platforms and the opportunity to share their stories. So something I do alongside Wikipedia editing is, is work quite hard to nominate people for kind of significant prizes that will impact their career, but also really celebrate, you know, it's, it's fantastic when you do that because people think, hey, that's great. Like my work is important and valued. And then people in the audience think like, hey, that's fantastic that this person is as brilliant as they are. And potentially one day I could be like that too. So, so I think nominating people for awards and prizes is a really big and important thing. And actually similar to every other profession where I think you have underrepresentation of certain groups, mentorship and kind of being a, an ally, being a supporter and an advocate of people, but also mentoring people who don't have the networks or opportunities that you have so that one day they get into the positions that you're in. I think that can have huge, huge impact on, on the representation of women and minorities in science, but also more broadly at higher levels in society. Um, so I, uh, what are the main challenges that you're facing um, and why Wikipedia specifically seems to have such a problem? I think Wikipedia is a manifestation of all the other issues in society that have built the hierarchies that we have. So the way that you have, that one has, the, the way that people are um, documented on Wikipedia is that it has a notability criteria. It is obviously an encyclopedia. So everything on there has to be of public interest. And to prove that things are of public interest, there's a criteria to deem whether something is notable or not. And, and that's kind of skewed and biased towards successful privileged white men. So the, the, the list of criteria to become a notable, notable academic, a kind of, you know, won a significant prize, has had a highly cited paper, has been, had their science spoken about in kind of public consciousness. So in the news and things like that. And because all of those different criteria are quite biased towards white men, Wikipedia reflects how biased academia is. So, so Wikipedia doesn't have a bigger problem than academia in general, or a bigger problem than, you know, design and media or huge awards that people win. It just reflects the way that society is biased. So I, I, and, and I guess the reason that I think Wikipedia is so fantastic is that we can change it, right? For most things, it's nowhere near as transparent. For promotion to physics professor, the pathway isn't as clear. The decision-making isn't as clear as on Wikipedia. Wikipedia 
we are all the editors. Every single person who contributes to that site is a volunteer. So we have the power to change the narrative of those stories, which is different to history textbooks or what you learn at high school. And so that's why I think it's such a powerful platform. You know, for the first time I think ever, you've got so many eyes reading and learning from a resource where, where people who are from traditionally marginalized groups could be really influential and important contributors. We, we really can change the story and that's why I think it's so crucial. The, the big challenge is even when you do have phenomenal women who have, and, and people of color, because it's much more extreme for women of color actually, when you've got people who do fantastic research who are having an influence on their local communities, who are changing education policy, all of these things. It's really hard to prove that because there aren't enough references that I can use to write the Wikipedia pages. So the main challenge for me isn't identifying fantastic marginalized scientists from marginalized backgrounds, but it's proving that they're notable to be on the site. And that's because they don't get the profiles, they don't get the accolades, they don't get the celebrations that, that their white, white male counterparts might get. So it kind of comes a full circle, part of the kind of awards and nomination project that I do and, and really trying to get more diverse people into the really, you know, the top levels of science and to become fellows of professional bodies. Lots of that is so that I can then use that as a citation on Wikipedia to prove that they're influential and noble. So, so my hardest challenge is, is proving that these people fit the kind of old fashioned historical notions of what is and isn't notable. Um, just to build off of that, um, talking about notability and sort of credibility in general, you are obviously a high profile um, academic in science at a well-respected institution. You have a pretty sizable Wikipedia page. Do you ever feel like despite the fact that you're evidently notable and you've developed a serious credibility for yourself, you're still ever not taken seriously uh, in your role just because you're a woman? For sure. And I think actually that part of um, having this, I don't want to say notability because it's such an embarrassing thing, but I, part of having this, you know, reputation for advocating for people from underrepresented groups or having, you know, the Wikipedia project or working with kids in high schools or anything to improve the gender diversity and ethnicity diversity within science, all of that's really fantastic, but it doesn't do very much for your scientific um, reputation. So scientists are kind of well known, and I've probably alluded to it in this discussion, but for being elitist and old fashioned. And if, if professors at the top who will ultimately be the people who make decisions about my career, you know, whether I get that award, whether I get that funding, whether I get that lab space, whether I can apply for that grant, if they see all these efforts that I'm making to make science more inclusive and diverse, they don't necessarily see that as something that's beneficial to research. And in science, you're very much based and judged and evaluated on that. So I think that I actually strongly believe that the work I do to make the scientific community more inclusive is, is just as important as my scientific research. For sure, you get um, judged based on the fact that 
you're trying to make science a better place. And for a lot of people, they don't mind about the situation. The kind of status quo now is fine for them. So I think you do get, I do get judged on that. And when you look around at the other scientists who also do this work, who also do this kind of academic service, it's usually women and people of color, you know, women are advocating for women scientists, black scientists are setting up huge phenomenal networks for black scientists, LGBTQ plus scientists are working to better support and promote LGBTQ plus scientists, which leaves this kind of privileged white majority male elite to not have to care or think about these issues and to focus on their research, which then in turn brings about more of these prejudices, which I'm sure is similar to lots of other disciplines too, but I think you feel it quite acutely when you have such hierarchical power structures that have to, you know, I have to navigate to become a successful scientist. Do you think that, you, you talked a lot about opening up accessibility to people at a young age and demonstrating, um, you know, with, with example, women who have achieved success in science and have become notable, but do you think there's any actual structural change to the institutions that needs to happen to universities to the, the the methods by which you know you might achieve tenure or a position or anything like that for example a quota yeah i think quotas are kind of controversial i mean so lots of places lots of european cities have actually introduced quotas for women academics i would much rather see women early career researchers be identified and mentored and supported so that they could then apply for similar schemes and awarding things to their male counterparts. But that seems to be taking a kind of glacially slow process. So, so we've been speaking about these issues, particularly relating to women now accelerated related to ethnic minorities in science for a long time. And, and numbers haven't really shifted. So if you look at the decades long effort in the UK and, and elsewhere to try and improve diversity of professors, then numbers haven't changed that much. You know, in the whole of the UK, we have a, just over 19,000 professors. And of all of those 19,000 professors, about 18,000 are white and 30 are black. So you have this huge disparity despite positive efforts. So I, I you know, I'm coming around to the idea that we just need to fix it by saying, you know, quotas historically meant that only white men could get the job. So now we need to have quotas the other direction. We need to have quotas that support women and people of color to get it. But I think bigger than that, we need scientific institutions to recognize that so much of the thing that they describe as talent, that they describe as kind of innate ability comes down to privilege. If you look at the people we're letting into schools, if you look at the people that we're giving money to, if you look at the people who are being highly cited and invited to speak at conferences, a lot of that is because they work in wealthy and, and financially secure institutions. That A lot of that is because of the education path that they stumbled upon because their parents had the opportunity to pay for them to go to the private school. And I think that not enough <laughs> academics look at the scientific community around them and recognize how much privilege contributes to who's in charge. And I think we need to have that conversation as well and then do the mentorship, then do the training and then make sure that people who don't have that privilege can also get into these higher positions. I've been talking earlier about your formation in design. So I was wondering, can we talk about design in science and maybe could inclusive design work in the science industry too? 
for sure I think I think I mean inclusive design is so central to anything that we create as scientists or an engineer you know we've got to start thinking about if you're an engineer creating a product you're thinking about who's going to create and use it if you're a medic making a new drug or a vaccine you've got to think about the community that you want it to serve and to treat and I think that historically you know there's loads of examples of cases where you've had an all white, all male, all Western leadership team designing products that are supposed to benefit the whole world. You saw it with seatbelts, you see it with the design of most pharmaceutical drugs. You see it, you know, I work in, in labs all the time where I have to wear gloves and you see it even just in the size and the shape of the lab coats and gloves we have because everything is default large, which is way, way too big for my tiny hands. And so I think that you see where inclusive design has been really forgotten about in science. And, you know, when Apple released their health app, which wasn't that long ago now, when, when that came out, they didn't have any women in the team who made the decisions about what kind of things, what kind of data it collected. And it collect, collected no information about women's health. There was a huge scandal about it. That was risen within recent memory. Similarly, as I mentioned, for seatbelts. So, of course, inclusive design has a huge role to play. But I think actually bigger than that, because I've gone straight for application, design has a huge role to play in how we create curriculums. So how we create science curriculums, how we decide what we're teaching to the communities that we're teaching. You know, when, when I think about the undergraduate lectures I had in physics, pretty much every physicist that you're taught about is an old white man. And you're not taught about anything from a kind of culturally sensitive perspective. You know, there's a lot of discussion and debate about decolonizing curriculums and what that really means. But for sciences, that means we speak a lot more about the Eastern world, right? We don't speak about that at all. We speak about kind of posh old English men who went out and like an apple fell on their heads and then they discovered a fundamental constant. We don't speak about the fact that the rest of the world was making these discoveries too. You never learn it. You don't learn about huge amounts of kind of Arabic geometry and maths that was so important and influential for, for what Western scientists went on to do. Or the fact that probably the scientists you're learning about weren't very nice people. You know, lots of the early statisticians in the, in the UK and Europe were, were horrible, awful, not only racist, but also eugenicists. And you don't get that context when you're learning science at undergraduate or even at high school now. So I think that we have to teach in a way that makes every single person in that classroom recognize that their history, their ancestors, whatever it was, is important for understanding the world. And to talk about the shortcomings of the scientists that we've kind of so far put on a pedestal. Um, so what are some everyday actions you can put in place, especially as someone who's working in education to make sure that we are seeing the global picture of a story and never forget one side. And by that, I mean, um, I remember seeing this movie about, um, it was at the NASA and it was women working in the shadow of the men at NASA and they were actually have they were actually having a great impact on um, on making people going to space. So, how, according to you, how do we make sure that we never forget one side of the story? 
I like that description of Hidden Figures without saying the title <laughs> Hidden Figures. It was like playing, um, what's that game that you have to play, Pictionary. Um, so I think that, um, I mean, exactly, you don't even need to ask me the question because you've already answered it. But I think you choose the narratives that you tell, you choose who you introduce. If you're working in a classroom, if you're a parent, you choose what books your kids read, you choose the stories that you talk about at dinner. Even you choose the documentaries that you watch on television, you know, you can choose ones. There are really fantastic examples of awesome kids books that tell the story of, of people from diverse backgrounds, of really, really great science television programs that use really extraordinary presenters who you wouldn't usually engage with. You have that opportunity, you know, we all have this kind of local power to make these decisions. And, and I, think that, I think that's massive. But also spend some time making sure that the people around you who are from underrepresented groups or who are working in careers where traditionally there haven't been people who look like them, make sure they feel comfortable and well supported. You don't have to work in their technical discipline to be able to give really, really great career advice. You don't have to understand everything about physics to sit down and write a nomination for a, for a physicist to win an award or a prize. I think, you know, we as individuals underestimate the power that we have to make change. It doesn't have to be on Wikipedia, it can be anywhere in society, but you have this opportunity to lift other people up. And I think we, we forget about that a lot because everyone's kind of selfish and lazy. Maybe do you have a role model that you can share with the community so they can get inspired too? For sure, 100, I mean, I have, 1,150 now because of my Wikipedia editing. So, so my favorite story by far is um, a, a woman called Gladys West, who is an African-American mathematician who was born in the 1930s. And she studied maths at a time when, you know, had she been born in the UK, she wouldn't have been legally allowed to graduate from university. So already she went to university as an African-American woman and studied maths. She worked for a teacher for a little, as a teacher for a little bit, and then worked for the US government and ultimately did the kind of early computation and maths for GPS technologies. So for the kind of satellite technologies that we use for all location and navigation. So Gladys West is really awesome. And I knew about this when I wrote her Wikipedia page two years ago, because I was like, she is so fantastic. And actually I had just watched Hidden Figures and I was like, this is like Hidden Figures. This is the most amazing story. And then last year she was nominated for the BBC Top 100 Women in the World. So the BBC have this list of top 100 women And so she was in that, you know, approaching 90 now because she was born in the 1930s. She was then at the age of 90 inducted into the US Air Force Hall of Fame. So now she's getting this great, great recognition. So US Air Force Hall of Fame and BBC 100 Women. And then last year, and this is the most inspirational thing, she finished her PhD. So she did a PhD by distance learning. So it's like, It's like Gladys West's Wikipedia page will never stop growing. It's, you know, there's so much to learn about her. And every time I, I think about her and, you know, having watched Hidden Figures, the challenges that she must have experienced working for the US government as a black woman mathematician in the kind of 1950s, you think these people are absolutely incredible and their stories should be headline news everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, I have so many inspiring people around me. So that is just one. What advice would you give to a young woman who wants to work in science? Just do it. I think I probably have a lot of hoodies that have that advice on it. I think um, 
I think just go for it. I mean, find the thing that find that you find most interesting, find the area of science, the discipline of science that you find most fascinating, and then find people that you want to work with. Something I just think we completely forget about from, from our science education at school is how important creativity in in, is in science, in experimental design and discovery. Creativity is absolutely key. But beyond that, I think that we forget about how important interpersonal skills are, networking, building a community. People only want to work with you if you're quite nice and it's fun to work and it's a good project. And, and I think that we forget and we don't talk about that. So I would say find the discipline of science that you want to work in and then find an awesome, a really awesome team to work with because that will keep you inspired and excited and, and comfortable in asking questions. Thank you so much, Jess, for all this information and for your knowledge. It was a really a pleasure to have you by our side today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for staying with us and for listening to the podcast. I hope you got inspired by Jess' project and you will understand the importance of inclusivity. So don't hesitate to hire more women and minority in your teams. See you soon. Thanks for staying with us and for listening to the podcast. I hope you got inspired by Jess' project and you will understand the importance of inclusivity. So don't hesitate to hire more women and minority in your teams. See you soon.